Prophets, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? My name is Reverend Ann Dunlap. I'm a UCC pastor doing community ministry for racial justice and solidarity here in Denver, Colorado. You can learn more about me at fierceRevRemedies.com. I also coordinate faith work for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, nationally. This podcast is a project of SURGE Faith. As always, I'm grateful to be with you wherever you are listening to this right now. I decided to record today from my desk at my office at home. It's a corner desk, and so behind my computer screen here there are photos of all my beloved people, icons of Guadalupe, stones and turtles, love notes. I have various anointing oils and balms here, and my favorite smelling salts. Around me are books on the side shelves, Bibles and theological books, prayer collections, biographies of Hildegard, herbal medicine guidebooks. There's a brick from the hospital where I was born, crosses from El Salvador, a photograph of my grandfather in the pulpit of the church where he baptized me. And back behind my screen again is the wheel of directions and elements and moon phases and seasons that I drew for one of my herb classes. These are what surround me right now. What surrounds you right now? Find your breath and notice what is around you. Maybe call to you what you need right now. Friends, beloveds, ancestors, herbal allies, creature allies. Breathe and know that you are surrounded, covered by the divine, above, below, behind, and before. Amen. than working with the lectionary text for March 12th. What I want to do is focus on the four encounter stories the lectionary offers from the Gospel of John over the course of this year A Lent cycle. They take us through the next four Sundays through April 2nd. These encounter stories are John 3, Nicodemus, John 4, the Samaritan woman, John 9, healing of the blind man, and John 11, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. I know many people love the Gospel of John. Much lofty language, beautiful metaphors and imagery, a view of Jesus that is at once exalted and also not afraid to get down in the dirt. In John's Gospel, water is turned to wine, dead friends are raised, feet are washed, women are called by name. 
But I'll be honest with you, I find John to be such a challenge. It reads as such a binary text, so much either or. I am the way, the truth, the gate, the light, the shepherd, the whatever. Believe it or be condemned. At least that's the interpretation handed to us at this point in history. However does one make an argument towards the value and worthiness of other spiritual traditions when this gospel is biting us at every turn, including in these four encounters? And then, how do we deal with the anti-Jewishness of this gospel? In the other three gospels, even Matthew, it's easier to push back against it, but in John it is everywhere, every page, every encounter. Fights, name-calling, including by Jesus, mind you, interrogations, death threats, and because we've pulled Jesus out of his context into some kind of position hovering outside of history, outside of time, especially because of this gospel, his I am the whatever statements only serve to reinforce his position as an anti-Jewish one. I am, and quote-unquote the Jews, are not. Ugh. There's a violent polemic that is inescapable in this gospel, and it should cause us immense amounts of discomfort and require from us immense amounts of care. This is why I wanted to talk about all four of these encounter stories at once as an overview of this Lent cycle, because we cannot, we cannot keep telling these stories in a way that perpetuates anti-Jewish oppression that blames quote-unquote the Jews for Jesus' execution, that places Christians as the winners in the eternal life roulette and non-believers who get named as Jews in John's Gospel as the losers. We cannot. Ironically, <clears throat> the Gospel of John is where we find Jesus telling us that the truth will set us free. And we have to tell the truth about this Gospel. All that lofty language from a historically dislocated Jesus distracts us from the truth that this gospel is violent. It tells lies about itself. It blames the wrong people. Also true is that whatever these communities were fighting over, whatever the author was so upset about, most of that is lost. And what we do have is often as deeply one-sided as this gospel is. We don't actually know very much. Let me tell you this too, I am hesitant even to use such language to describe this gospel. Violent, lies, blaming, damn I'm thinking, even these are stereotypes about Jews that can be traced right back to this gospel. Stereotypes and tropes being used right now to excuse violence against Jewish communities, including from right out of the president's mouth. How do we even begin to address this? I mean look. In Nicodemus' story, we have a Pharisee who apparently doesn't get it. Honestly, it is not clear to me if he does or not. Is it clear to you? And non-believers are condemned and called evil. The Samaritan woman's story may seem a little better on the surface, but we still have that believer-non-believer -believer dynamic at play. And the Gospel is nudging at us to compare, as the Gospel goes along, how the non-Jewish and rather hated Samaritans believe in Jesus when quote-unquote the Jews do not. Except when they do. It's so confusing. The story of the blind man being healed 
comes on the heels of a nasty fight between Jesus and Pharisees and quote-unquote the Jews in chapter 8. Here the man born blind is interrogated by both a broad group called the Jews as well as Pharisees. It's a legal investigation, though it's odd because it's the Sabbath and the likelihood of Pharisees working on the Sabbath is unrealistic. In addition, we have mentioned in this story of the man's parents being afraid of quote-unquote the Jews because they would be expelled from the synagogue. And here's what I mean about the gospel lying on itself. Being put out of the synagogue is not a thing that happened during Jesus' time, and it's uncertain if it was ever actually practiced at all. Finally, the Lazarus story. Again, we have the binary believers have life claims, and the way the lectionary editors cut the story at verse 45 certainly makes it feel like the whole point of this story is to get, quote-unquote, the Jews to believe. You see what I mean? It's everywhere. And in between these stories, there are attempted stonings and attempted arrests and more nasty fights and lots more I am binary talk. Oh my goodness. Doesn't part of you want to just say there's nothing redeemable about this gospel and refuse to preach it? Wash your hands of it? The trouble is, we can't. Because of the long history of Christians using the Gospel of John as a weapon against Jews, we have an obligation to be vocal in our refusal to perpetuate this use of the Gospel and to state clearly why. We have to be willing to state that Christian use of the Gospel of John, both historically and contemporarily, has been to buttress theological claims to white Western Christian imperial power anti-Jewish oppression and colonization, including theological justifications for slavery, both utilize the gospel in this way. I'm not even going to get into colonization in John today. It's enough to deal with the anti-Jewishness, but we need to note that as well and hold it in mind. We can trace the use of John in this way back to how Christian tradition has dislocated Jesus out of his historical context driving wedges into these seemingly either-or spaces in the narrative, setting up Jesus and his followers as good Christians and everyone else, quote-unquote the Jews and otherwise, as condemned, as non-believers, as being of the devil. The perfect weapon to excuse and provide a theological explanation for white Western Christian imperialism. Now I'm making an assumption that most of y'all listening to a podcast called The Word is Resistance are among those like me who want to say we're progressive, that we don't believe those things about imperialism and anti-Jewishness and such, which is good. And it means we have to be vocally fighting those interpretations at every turn. And to be fair, we don't always. We talk about Pharisees as hypocrites without any critical eye. I heard a white progressive preacher do this just recently. We talk about the Jews in John with no nuance or complexity. We claim Jesus as the hero of the marginalized and outcast as if Judaism were some kind of retrograde religious tradition, but Christianity the liberated one. Again, I commend Dr. Amy Jill Levine and the Jewish Annotated New Testament to you. Dr. Levine has a great essay in the Jewish Annotated New Testament about errors Christians, including progressive ones, make about Judaism, and it's worth the read. But here we are, left with these complicated encounter stories in John, 
for Lent. And here's a look ahead. The Holy Week Gospel readings are also from John, or Matthew, which honestly is not much better. So what do we do? Where do we even begin? So some folks might start with stating the obvious. Jesus was a Jew. There was no such thing as Christianity in the time this gospel was written. So Jesus is not a Christian, he's a Jew, amongst other Jews. It's an internal, inter-Jewish fight. That's a good place to start, and we should always, always state this when we are preaching gospel texts that narrate tension in the Jewish community of the time. But I wonder if any more, if that's actually enough, especially to counter the vitriol that we find in this gospel that too easily sets up Jesus and eventually Christians, regardless of whether or not there were any in Jesus's time, superseding Jews and Judaism. That is, setting up Jesus and Christians as winners, as the right ones, as the saved ones. It has to mean something that Jesus is a Jew. It has to mean something, mean something in a particular moment in history, on the ground, in the dirt, in his flesh, in his daily living. So here's where I want to start, actually, with the verse that is never read in the whole three-year cycle of the lectionary. This is why my dad, himself a preacher, hates the lectionary, by the way, because you don't read the whole Bible, he says. So this is John 11:48. after Jesus raises Lazarus. Jesus raises up Lazarus, and some in the Jewish community, including some religious leadership, are deeply troubled. And this is what they say. If we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe him, and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. The Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. Aren't you curious why the lectionary editors leave that bit out? Why we never read it? Could it be because as the religion of the current empire, we don't want to draw too close attention to the role the Roman Empire has to play here? The threat of Rome hangs heavy over John's gospel if we pay attention. The threat of Rome is real, and in fact the author of John knows this, because by the time John is written, Rome has indeed come and destroyed the temple and Jerusalem and carried off the spoils to Rome. Jews were also carried off as slaves to the empire. The trauma of this destruction would still be present and felt in the community and is still present and felt in this gospel. I want us to imagine reading these encounter stories with the threat of Rome hanging over our heads. This means we are dealing with two historical layers here, an accounting of what happened during the timeline of Jesus' life, and the trauma left on the skin of the community looking back telling the story. That trauma, I think, colors how the community tells the story of Jesus. Post-colonial biblical scholar Musa Dube reminds us that these different groups we see in John's Gospel, Jesus followers, John followers, Pharisees, Sadducees, these are all factions trying to figure out how to survive under Roman imperial occupation, and they don't agree on the best way to do that. 
we see these conflicts throughout the Gospels, and they're harshest in John, for reasons that are guesses at best, but honestly nobody knows for sure. I want to make an analogy that what they're living could be like what we're living right now, with sometimes major disagreements in the movement about how we're going to fight and resist a fascist repressive government that has no respect for dignity, human or otherwise. Should we vote? Shut down highways? March every weekend? Kneel during the national anthem? Call people in? Call people out? Make phone calls every day to our senators? Become sanctuary churches? Chain ourselves to pipeline drills? I want to make that analogy, and maybe you feel it a little too, but I still want us to be cautious. Because as we read this story from John, we need to admit that as white Western Christians, we have no idea what it is like to live under imperial occupation in the way that Jesus and his community did. To have our temples and holy cities and people destroyed in the way that they did. To live with the trauma embedded in our skin the way that they did. White Western Christianity is the religion of imperial power which provides us protection and comfort at the center of the imperial project as much as we would like for it not to be so. We have no idea. So I want us to be cautious about claiming more than we can know. And are there still pieces, clues, something, anything we can glean as resistance lessons from these stories? because we're still left with these stories. We have to lay down this groundwork first. The threat of Rome is real. It hangs over everything. These different movements within Judaism are trying to figure out how to survive under that threat, what it means to be faithful under that threat. They don't agree, sometimes angrily so. To make things messier, as if they weren't messy enough. There are also those religious leaders who are happy to collaborate with the empire in order to have some measure of power in this situation. And finally, the author of John often blurs all these boundaries by lumping all of these groups into one, quote-unquote, the Jews, who both believe and don't believe in Jesus, whatever that may mean. So I come back to chapter 11 verse 48 because it is fascinating to me that the fear expressed by some not all it is never all the Pharisees and other religious leaders is not that their belief system is wrong but that Jesus's actions and declarations put them all at risk of getting destroyed by Rome so what if what if these binaries these either ors we see are not about believing a doctrine about Jesus so much as an argument about the best way to resist the empire? What if the fights they are having are not so much about the nature of Jesus, but about how they can keep from being destroyed? What if, in the story of Nicodemus, being born anew means realizing we are formed into an oppressive system, aka born of the flesh, and we are born anew or in the spirit when we wake up and commit ourselves to liberation? What if not perishing means that God's power is far beyond what any empire can muster, 
and we are always held by that power. What if Nicodemus, a Pharisee, actually gets it? We see him again, after all, advocating for Jesus with the council and tending to Jesus' body after his execution. What if Nicodemus gets to go on a fully human journey? If we let Jesus go on like this, the Romans will come and destroy us. What if we learn from Jesus and the Samaritan woman that organizing for resistance necessitates sitting down with people we would not have beforehand? What if we notice that the Samaritans give Jesus a title reserved for Roman emperors, Savior of the world, which is in itself an act of resistance? Jesus, about the farthest thing from a Roman emperor you could get in terms of social location and in terms of his ethical commitments. If we let Jesus go on like this, the Romans will come and destroy us. What if we notice that the man healed of blindness shows no particular desire to comply with the interrogation by some, some, never all, of the religious leaders? What if the concern of these leaders is less, did this guy heal on the Sabbath or not, and more, don't let word get out about this guy? What if this notion of sin being thrown around about is less about what you do or don't believe, and more about to what degree you think Robert's rules of order is going to save you from Rome's threats? If we let Jesus go on like this, the Romans will come and destroy us. What if, what if the takeaway from Lazarus being raised up is not that of Lazarus being raised up is that not even Rome has power over death. Only God, only God, and when we are aligned with our Creator in this way, the Divine who holds us beyond life and death both, Rome has no ultimate power over us either. If we let Jesus go on like this, the Romans will come and destroy us. What if? What if the Gospel of John is a fight over who is to blame for the destruction of Jerusalem? Jesus on the one hand embodying, it would seem, a total non-compliance with the empire, Pharisees on the other hoping, it would seem, that by not drawing attention, by being faithful to their practices, they can survive. Another either-or. Well, Rome is the one we should blame though, right? Jesus is executed by Rome. Jerusalem is destroyed by Rome. We Christians would say that Jesus lived on, that's our confession, that Rome could not kill him. But the thing is, Rome couldn't kill Judaism either. As much as I really, really, really want to make an argument about some, not all, never all, Pharisees being the white, middle, upper-class Christians of our time with our constant maneuvers to protect and center our own comfort, our reliance on rules of order, Robert said otherwise, and wanting to be nice and avoid controversy, and please don't get me wrong, I do think we need to think about that too, and, and, Rome couldn't kill Judaism either. Rome couldn't kill Jesus, and they couldn't kill Judaism. 
if we let Jesus go on like this, the Romans will come and destroy us. Maybe the point is, Rome will come and destroy us regardless. So let's figure out the way we are going to resist. Maybe it's like Jesus, maybe it's like Nicodemus, maybe it's like the Samaritan woman, maybe it's like the blind man, maybe it's like Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Maybe the truth is, none of us ever knows for sure we're doing it exactly right, the best we can, all the time. Jesus wept. Maybe he wasn't sure either. Rome's threat is constant, historical and present, and colors everything about this story. As white Christians, let's be honest about that. And let us no longer blame Jews for the sins of the empire. call to action this week is pretty straightforward. If you're a preacher, preach this. Preach your total discomfort with the Gospel of John. Preach that you don't know. Preach your refusal to blame Jews for what Rome or the U.S. Empire is responsible for. Preach this. Preach it knowing that the divine is holding you and providing for you and loves you utterly. If you're not a preacher, you can still resist these stereotypes and tropes when they come up in conversation, on social media, your workplace. Speak out in spaces where you have access, knowing that the divine is also holding you and providing for you and loves you utterly. For everyone, keep learning. I'll put some of last week's resources about the intersection of anti-Jewish oppression and white supremacy in the transcript again. And for everyone, show solidarity with your Jewish neighbors, especially if a synagogue or Jewish community center has been the target of a hate crime or bomb threat recently. Reach out and ask what solidarity from you would look like. That's your call to action this week. And actually for the rest of Lent as well, since these encounter stories take us all the way to Holy Week. Thank you for joining me today. As always, the transcript this week will include a bunch of resources at the end to support your action. Let us know how it goes by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. I'll be posting up the next podcast, an overview of the Lent Romans text, more fun, during the week of March 20th. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with me there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts will be available as well on our website, which include any references, credits, and copyright information. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap. Thank you so much.